welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. Today's episode of High Action, we're featuring Fareed Hawk. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the High Action Podcast. We are so excited you are here joining us today. Uh, Will, what is happening, man? How's Long Beach? Long Beach is gloomy and beautiful. Perfect. And- temperate and the parrots are abound wow what a brilliant description and uh john story how's burbank good just got back from a little road trip up north in oregon before the heat wave and was in san francisco for a week and it was beautiful man it's just feeling so good to get out play some shows for some people yeah man gigs are coming back uh i'm out here in brooklyn and it is warm it is hot but the gigs are also coming back, and we're excited in New West. We have some good gigs coming up this summer, so for those of you that are interested in listening, especially out in California, uh, go to newwestguitar.com and see some of the gigs that are going to be coming up for us. Uh, We would love to see you at a live show. Today, we're also thrilled to be um, presenting you a wonderful interview with a guitarist named Fareed Hawk. Fareed is a Chicago-based guitar player who's long been one of my favorite cats on the guitar. I mean, he's just so deep in so many areas. Um, got a wonderful sound on the nylon string guitar, and he's just got a real deep pocket when it comes to playing jazz, when it comes to playing R&B. You know, this this guy really knows what's up, and we had a wonderful discussion with him. Um, Will, it was cool hearing you talk with him about time. I mean, it's probably the thing that we talk about the most in New West. Yeah, so something about Fareed's playing that, that I really respect and relate to is his decisiveness on fitting into the situation and not necessarily just injecting a certain style or vocabulary. You know, he's willing to adapt and change for the scenario, whether it's straight eighth note, swung eighth note, how much you're pushing forward or laying back. And he had a lot to say about that. And um, I, I'm a firm believer in, in doing that as well. So Yeah. And yeah, we had a really honest discussion with him. Uh, John, I thought it was cool how he was, you know, really just kind of open and candid about his struggles the last year, you know, staying motivated and then coming out ultimately with something better. I mean, you've done an incredible job this year of staying motivated and being ahead of the curve. And now the gigs are coming back. You're, you're busier than ever. Right. So it was a good message to hear from Fareed. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I also feel like he's somebody that has seen his share of adaptation Mm-hmm. over such a long period of time it's always inspiring when you get to connect to older players who you just you just hear in the tone of their voice like yep i've been through this before i've had to pick up what i've done and start all over again or i had that band and then had to do something else and for a lot of us younger players like this year i mean for everyone it was such a shocker and such a whiplash effect it's really inspiring to get to talk to him and he just was like yeah you know man just can moving forward with my teaching pivoting to a lot of stuff online. It's really great to get to talk to him about how he did all of that. 
Absolutely, yeah. And we recorded this interview earlier in the year, and we're excited to be presenting it to you today. And uh, for all of you joining us each week, we want to thank you. And if you're not familiar with our Patreon account, you can hear the three of us talk about guitars, play guitars, talk about what we're practicing, see some behind-the-scenes videos. So... Without further ado, let's get rolling on this interview, episode number 44, with the great Fareed Hawk. Voila! Yo! What's up? My man. Here we are. Me and my Indian guard. He's always over my shoulder. <laughs> I didn't plan it. He just appeared. You're looking well, my friend, and it's been way too long. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, man. Uh, what was that? We played somewhere in, uh, in Indy, right? Or was it? In South Bend, Indiana. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, right. So, Very cool. yeah, it's been really fun kind of diving into some uh, areas of your career that I wasn't as familiar with. Uh, so yeah, we're stoked to have you here, man. Oh man, it's great. It's great you're doing this. And it's been an interesting time for all musicians to kind of reassess what we value, you know, mm. and we've all been doing different stuff just to try to kind of keep the flame moving. And that's, that's exciting because it makes us realize that we're the chameleons, you know? That's right. Yes. You know, we have to kind of keep evolving as artists, like you're saying, even in the midst of a, uh, hundred year pandemic you know what i'm saying <laughs> once in a hundred yeah. year pandemic i hope it doesn't right. last a hundred years god that would be the yeah <laughs> that would be the worst <laughs> let me just officially welcome you farid to the high action podcast uh you've been one of my favorite guitar players around for quite a long time and uh for the listeners i just want to give a little bit of background about how uh, we are connected, how the New West Guitar Group and uh, Farid are connected, and also kind of how I first started hearing about you. And uh, you may remember I went to uh, school at USC where I met John. That's where we founded the New West Guitar Group. And right. there was a student at USC that was a few years younger than me, a, a great bassist named Gabe Noel, who I believe oh, sure. you know from Chicago, right? Right, yeah. Great, great player, great, great human being. Yeah, definitely. And as I got to know Gabe and he was telling me about the music he would play in Chicago, he would mention your name all the time. And he would say, oh, man, you got to check out Fareed Hawk. You got to check him out. And and that's kind of when I started getting familiar with your recordings and your playing. And uh, I was just always super impressed with your your artistic sort of vision combined with your versatility. You know, you don't see that all the time with players like i feel like it's more often to see players that are really artistically strong in one area but not as versatile but you seem to have the strength on both of those sides so i feel like that's very very unique uh in in the way that you're able to approach music and playing the guitar it's like there isn't really too many avenues that you can't explore at some of the highest levels so um yeah it's just wonderful to have you on the podcast with us and you know if i fast forward from the days when i first heard about you at usc through our mutual friend gabe noel and then it's like fast forward 15 years 
and the New West Guitar Group were out in South Bend, Indiana, and here we are playing a double bill with you at this yeah. nice outdoor yeah. concert, you know, and uh, it was a wonderful little moment to kind of come full circle with you. Um, so, do you remember sure. that show? Played, I think we played, did we play Take Five, or was it Blue Rondo a la Turk, or some Rubeck thing, I think. Yes, it must have been Blue Rondo a la Turk that we ended up coming together on at the end of the right. night. <laughs> that was really cool. That was really cool. I um, I remember that that that, that moment because there's a video floating out there somewhere of of the whole whole set. Is there? I think, I think so. YouTube is is both a treasure and a torture, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's like everything. <laughs> that I done, have done uh, somewhere is, you know, existing in infamy in some cases. That's right. Well, just for the record, that actually got taken down, Fareed. It isn't oh. up anymore. Oh, because really? We saw the whole thing get put up and we were, we actually went, we had it all removed because there was, they literally put up every single track from that show. I remember being on the road with Perry and we requested them to take it down. Oh, so right. that actually doesn't exist anymore. Okay. <laughs> Because I, I know that, that that I really enjoyed your show. I, you know, I was kind of put on the spot there with like, you know, the solo guitar set with the electric, the cheapy electric classical guitar, and I was kind of like, mm. you know, I thought I, I have a real problem with amplified classical. It's just it's such a hard instrument to uh, to amplify, and it's so beautiful acoustic. Yeah. Then you start plugging her in, and I mean, every guitarist that plays nylon that ends up trying an amplified classical ends up just like, you know, it's so hard to, to make them. I mean, and they really haven't gotten that much better. Right. You know? I mean, uh, yeah, we, we understand like anytime you're trying to amplify an acoustic instrument, whether it's a nylon string classical or a steel string acoustic, you're just dealing with a whole other set of challenges to get the vibe going. But you yeah. know, it's funny that you mentioned this, and your feelings of kind of uh, somewhat of a struggle on that show, because I remember being in the audience listening to you playing solo guitar, because I think you, you went first that, that evening. You played before us. And I remember you were standing on the side of the stage. And this is for the listeners. This is an outdoor concert pavilion, probably at least a couple hundred, 300 people there or something like that, kind of all in their lawn chairs enjoying the music. But... There you were for me on the side of the stage, throwing down on the guitar. So it may have felt like awkward to you, but we were sitting back there. At least me personally, I was standing back there, just in awe of your playing, and thinking, oh. "I hope all these people in Indiana are digging this. I hope they all understand this." <laughs> you know, and sometimes that is part of it, isn't it? It's like when you have an audience that that you know they may be you know. The wonderful, you know, folks, but not a lot of folks have a ton of experience with all the different things that we do. Right. And sometimes, you know, I mean, every performance is really a, a marriage of audience and and an artist. So right? true. It's so not true. the one way. You know, that's why this whole, you know, virtual stuff is so challenging because, you know, we are musicians feed off the the, the audience's energy and the audience feeds off the art. You know, it's a, it's this symbiosis and. And sometimes, I mean, I can I, I have often actually. You you mentioned a good point because I think I've had experiences where I've noticed some of the nicest playing I've done has been when where I thought the audience wasn't even paying attention. Because mm. <laughs> then, in some ways, you you focus more on your playing and less on interacting. And sometimes, things that 
you feel like, wow, have you ever had that where, wow, this was the greatest gig we ever played. You listen back to it and with, without the audience there, it's not the same, you know? And, and then you have other experiences where the audience wasn't feeling it. They weren't there. And you listen back to it like, man, we're playing our asses off, you know? Yeah. And so sometimes the tape medium and the live medium is so, so different. It is. Hey, at the risk of talking too much, I'll give you an interesting example of this. Please. No, please do. Yes. I, 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 I use a lot um, as, a, as a teaching uh, lesson because it taught me a lot. I, um, you know, back in the day, I, I played a lot of California jam band festivals, right? In the Garage Mahal days or my uh, Flat Earth Ensemble, we would go yeah. out, do a you know, month-long California run, usually. And uh, I was invited to sit in with the radiator, by the radiators. It was a, a great classic New Orleans rock band, right? I mean, super pocket, right? And I'm like this kind of ethnic guy, and they're looking at me. I'm wearing my Indian clothes because I'd been coming off the Indian fusion band that I, I do. And they were kind of like, who, who is this? You know, and I was like, it's pretty cool. We're just going to play some blues. Don't worry. It'll yeah. be fine. And we had a great time. I went up for one song, and they kept me up for 11 songs. They, I went to like five in the morning. It was a late night set. They wouldn't let me leave. We had a blast. Dave and I were just like, just, it was just, you know, old school, right? Yeah, man. And, and you know, it was serious New Orleans rock and funk, you know? So I was just, I had like a Strat style guitar and I was just, you know, through a Fender twin, just, uh, oh. pinned, you know, just, ah, just, my toe, yeah, you just know? setting the vibe immediately. <laughs> right. And so, they obviously were feeling it. I was feeling it. The audience was feeling it. Everybody was feeling it. We get back to the after the the, the after party. So I was like, man, I, I recorded this set. I'm like, oh, let's check it out. You know? Oh my God. It was so horrible. <laughs> so horrible. You know, I, I was out of tune. I was rushing. The band was sketchy and 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 I was so depressed. I was like, oh man. Was it the drugs? Was it the beer? What was it? You know. Well, it, it definitely, it definitely wasn't the drugs. Let's just rule that out. It couldn't have been that. <laughs> no, 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 definitely not the drugs. Drugs were good, especially in California. Anyway, fast forward like a year, okay, somewhere else, and I walk into some after party from a gig, and there's this band slamming, just slamming on 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 the stereo just cranking out of the stereo and it's who is this band and it's killing right and the guitar player sounds like me but better you know <laughs> way better you know and, and in tune and right in the pocket and i'm like what the man who is this it's like you don't recognize that I'm like no it's like that's you with the radiators at high sierra I'm like what the you know and it just made me realize that like the recording, that was a board recording, right? Yeah. Which got so many of these elements right, whereas the other one was like a guy with, you know, two mics in his hat, you know, yeah, dancing yeah. up and down. And the time feel, the intonation, the balance, everything was affected by that electronic medium that was in between. You yes. know, it was, it was a, just a real eye-opener experience for me. So. That's interesting you say that. God, on, on so many levels, first of all, for the listeners, oftentimes after you perform... Uh, like an engineer will give you what's called a board recording. And it's like this sort of a direct signal from what he was getting, what he was mixing and presenting out to the audience. And it's oftentimes sounds like shit. Like oftentimes right. these yeah. board recordings are just like, oh, yeah, you can't even right. listen to it. But 
you know, beyond that, I think you bring up a good point when you're listening back to recordings from gigs that you thought were really happening. You know, as musicians, as artists, as guitar players, when we listen back, we're often, you know, the most harsh critic of ourselves. So you could be hearing something, especially if it was the next day or, or a week later from the gig, you could be hearing something and just, you know, have a hard time listening to yourself. Whereas if years go by, like you described in the later part of the story, then right. you have a different lens from it. You have a different perspective from it. So these are all yeah. the things that we go through as artists uh, when it comes to performing. And uh, I guess, let me ask you, Fareed, you know, this last year uh, plus, you know, all that has gone away. Have you um, been able to keep some kind of connection, you know, to your audience? Have you been able to have a few little performances and kind of get that feeling back a little bit? You know, it's, it's been a great year. It, you know, it's been a challenging year and, and, of course, a tragic year, but a very important year, I think, because mm. um, I really, you know, I was in that zone where I would go out for a month and come home for a week, two weeks, go out for three weeks, come home for two, go out for two, six it's, weeks. It's hard. And yeah, It's a hard life. And you start, yeah, it's a hard life, but it's also, you start chasing you know, it's like a paper, you're just like running after the, the music. Yep. I have a pretty good, you know, I've been touring with Cobham for the past two years mm. and it's a great gig, but as all those gigs are at a certain point, you start playing the same 11 songs, you right. know, <laughs> night after night. And, and that's a good thing on one hand, but man, you know, certain other musical chops can get real rusty. And, uh, and then the traveling and of course it's Bill's music. You know, it's great music. You know, I've played Stratus a lot now. <laughs> I've played Stratus a bunch. I've played Crosswinds a bunch. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like I got off that experience because, you know, I had like four months of touring and then everything shut down and all got canceled. And so I went through kind of a, kind of a depression. Yeah. And, you know, there were financial issues, but those weren't as serious as they might have been. I just retired, so my pension, you know, so that was... You know, kids weren't in school, so they were home. I was home. Oh, gosh, who are these people? You know? Right. You know, I mean, it's one thing to, to love your kids, but it's one thing to hang out with them 24-7, you know? Right, right, right. No babysitter, no daycare, no break, no grandparents to come and give mom a spell, you know? So, yeah, big adjustment, you know? It, it was. And I'd already been dabbling in video production, so I started producing more and more videos. I, I realized at a certain point that even if I didn't have, have a gig, I had to practice for myself, for my sanity. Yeah. You know, I like to say that, you know, for creative people, that gasoline that's inside us, if it comes out, it, it, it'll power the engine of, of art. But if it stays in, it's just poison. Ooh, that's good. I like that. Yeah, man. You, you know, I, be, I started becoming like this really unpleasant person to myself, to everybody. Got really dark. And at a certain point, I was like, you know, Mama, my, my wife, Jill, you know, First of all, we got to stick to one bottle of wine a day. That's it. No more. <laughs> and and I need to play music every day. I need to go across to my my little room or studio or whatever, and and I got to do that every day. And and I got to have these projects, you know. And slowly began to rekindle my love affair with music. You know, I don't know about you, man. But when you're on the road, last thing you want to do is listen to music. I, yeah, I feel you. I mean, you know, you have to figure out ways to survive as a musician, whether you're on the road or whether you're working every night in town. 
And yeah, there can be an element of like, if you're playing three or four hours on a night, you, you don't want to come home and throw on like the most intense Coltrane album that you love. You know, you just, you just can't like get into it. You know, you have to give yourself a break uh, so you don't burn out. And I think to what you were talking about this last year, a lot of guitar players and musicians have experienced this where it's like, you know, you see your career just kind of like take a hit, all these gigs go away. What are you supposed to do? You kind of get into a little bit of a depression and then eventually you can kind of power yourself back and kind of restructure uh, in a healthy way moving forward. And so, you know, it's, I'm glad to hear that you did that. You know, you're one of the most talented guitar players I know, and we certainly want to hear what you're putting out. So that's very kind of me. I have to say it was interesting and, and, and ultimately, really healthy good because you know i had to rekindle that love affair and and one of it was wow you know there was no music in the house for like a week and i was like just you know put a yeah. google you know <laughs> put on you know put on some james brown put on, and we had music in the house and all of a sudden I was like oh my god i i need this you know and then yeah. i was listening to my record collection again and you know, all these projects that I have, you know, been putting off till I retired, you know, in another 10 or 15 years, I started just jump, jumping into doing those now. Good. Um, then I started working with a few other musicians and, and as, a, as a record producer mm-hmm. and, uh, and produced a couple of TV, three or four TV shows, you know, internet shows for them. Mm. Um, it was tough for me. Everybody wanted me to do lessons, but I've got, you know, 12 True Fire courses out there with like hundreds of thousands of views. I didn't really see any point in competing with myself. Right. You know, I, I, I taught a lot and I, I was kind of like, hmm. You know that scene in Life of Brian where there's like seven prophets in the square? I don't and they're know. All like, it's like they're all like, there's like all these prophets, they all look like Jesus. They're all in the square and they're okay. all saying, you know, blessed are the, the cheese makers and, you know, blessed are the the cripples and, and blessed are the the businessmen and you know everybody giving a different rap out there and trying to get their followers and i didn't feel like adding one more voice to the rabble was going to make a difference right right i when get I, that when i got those true fire courses that i think are well they do a great job of producing those and i say what i mean and they they leave it alone you know right so it allowed me to to learn more about you know, video production, I got some cameras going, got my microphones, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm in the process of putting together three or four uh, live music venue situations. Good. Like li- so live I, streams and stuff for audiences? Yeah, as well as actually some actual venues that Good. are... I've got uh, some property in, in DeKalb, which oh, we awesome. have there. I've got a... Our summer place, we're, we're setting it up now to, to do music retreats there. Um, and so in addition to some touring, hopefully we'll we'll bring people to the farm. We're up here about 30 minutes south of Madison. Yeah, that's right. I, I know that, uh, well, that's cool. I know that you've kind of based in Chicago for uh, much of your career and yeah, I wanted to get into a little bit of your history, but before I do you do what you're talking about, I think is a really important point, which is like you have to kind of you have to kind of build your scene. 
you know, when it comes to being a guitar player, especially when you're like in jazz and different kinds of music that's sort of like a subculture in a lot of ways. Like you can't always expect the opportunities to be there for you that someone else has created. Oftentimes you got to create something, you got to create your scene. And for you, you're spearheading like different venues and trying to cultivate a place for artists to gather and perform. I mean, that's, that's building the scene, that's building your community. And that's like so crucial, especially nowadays uh, in music. Let me take a quick opportunity though, to just kind of give some of the listeners a little bit of background on you, Fareed. Um, I think you have a pretty fascinating story. And so let me just try to tell the listeners a little bit of what I know about you from my research and you can stop and correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, I know you were born in Chicago and that uh, your father is from Pakistan and your mother's from Chile. That's yeah. already a little fascinating uh, upbringing to have. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and that you traveled quite extensively when you were a kid. And I'm just, I guess my first quick question for you on your background is, um, you know, how did you get into music? What was the avenue that kind of got you hooked on the guitar and music at an early age when you're traveling all over the world? You know, it's, it, it's you know, I think a lot of folks talk about versatility and they talk about multiculturalism and, and diversity. All those are great. Um, you know, I, I was born into that. So it wasn't ever anything that I even knew that I was going to be thinking about. You know, mm-hmm. my parents are great music lovers. And so we had Ravi Shankar records. We had Flamenco records. We had Dave Brubeck and Miles Davis and Andres Segovia and mm-hmm. Bossa Nova, Lorinda Almeida, and mm. all these records um, at home. Ella, my mom just and my dad both just loved music. They took me to see Santana. They took me to see the Sabri brothers. They took me to see Flamenco music. So the guitar was always a part of all those musics, you know, in, mm-hmm. in Bossa Nova, it's part of that music. And in Latin, any Latin American music, the guitar is central. Uh, in Indian music, of course, the sitar and the sarod were central. Um, and all around me, you know, in rock and roll music, the guitar was there. It was really natural that I, I evolved an interest in, in all of these different ways of playing the guitar and didn't necessarily see them as separate or different things. Right. And then my mom went out since I was playing a little guitar and I was playing, you know, country roads and stairway to heaven and a yeah. few little things, she went out and went to the local record store. And this is something that doesn't happen today, but imagine she went to the, the dude there and she's like, my son is playing guitar and what are some records that he can get, you know? And shit, man, she's the guy or gal, whoever it was, I think it was sent her home with bright size life by Pat Metheny. Wow. Joyous Lake. Pat Martino. Nice. And Elegant Gypsy, Al Daniela. Wow. Okay. That'll get you started. <laughs> <laughs> right? That is some serious guitar. There's some serious guitar on those three records. I think I didn't get the Pat Martino record for like five years. Yeah. I, I, Pat, I got the Al I got pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But the Pat Martino was... Today's podcast is sponsored by Education Through Music Los Angeles. ETMLA partners with under-resourced schools to provide music as a core subject for all children and utilizes music education as a catalyst to improve academic achievement, 
motivation for school, and self-confidence. ETMLA believes that every child deserves access to high-quality music education taught by qualified and well-trained music teachers. Music can support learning in other key subjects, including math, science, and language arts. ETMLA was founded by their executive director, Victoria Lanier. She has incredible experience in music education, and she's a brilliant violin teacher. We know these folks. We know this organization. They're great people, and they're a 5013C nonprofit. So for people out there who are in a position to donate, a position to give back, we hope you all consider our favorite music education program, Education Through Music Los Angeles. You can find them at etmla.org. Of course, being multilingual, I started getting some calls for some gigs, and I'd get calls to play uh, Latin gigs and jazz gigs and rock gigs. And so all those skills tended to get developed. Mm-hmm. That's you, know, you can't play in a Chicago band without playing some skank. You know, yeah. you've got to play guitar you know yeah so i don't necessarily think of myself as versatile in the in the in the studio sense of that word exactly you know? yeah i agree yeah and i think you know santana in a way you look at santana you know what i do what al Demiola does is kind of an outgrowth of what santana started interesting can you explain it's that how, well you know he really saw the connection between the blues and latin music mm-hmm. and rock and latin music mm-hmm and as soon as those things start coming together, well, that whole fusion world started to expand, mm-hmm. you know, because the blues really is the root of all things jazz mm-hmm. and R&B. Mm-hmm. And Latin music, you know, the clave is, is the different claves in Latin music is the root of all things. You know, also in certain ways, African, you can get into a whole musicological discussion, I suppose. But, mm-hmm. but they're kind of connected together. So for me, playing bebop, and playing Latin music and playing funk aren't that far apart, really. Right. And I think that's why, on one hand, I feel like I can do that, you know, somewhat authentically, but, you know, my jazz playing is a little rawer than most jazz guys. My blues playing is a little rawer than most, you know, L.A. blues guys. You know, like you have the Robin Fords and all those great Mm -hmm. studio kind of blues players. My shit is old school, you know? You know, and, and, you know, I could never be a session player in that way because my, my shit is more old school. And I didn't really know that at the time. As I got older, I started realizing how much Chicago had been the, the source for so much of what I do. You don't necessarily come off quite as polished in some ways as, a, as like a L.A. studio player in these different styles, but the rawness to your playing, the emotion in your playing... Um, I think just makes you that much more of, of an attractive artist. It's like more human. And I think that can connect to a lot of people, uh, whether you're, whether it's a band leader or an audience member. So it's, I, mean, I think I it's think all depends right. on your perspective, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's where it's tricky for me because there are some amazing guitar players out there and, and many of them I, I immensely respect and, and would learn from and, 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 and admire Music doesn't move me necessarily that much. Right. You know, um, there are other players who are more rootsy, who I much more feel a connection with. And when I listen to the best of my playing, I feel like it has a connection to its roots. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's way more important to me than impressing other guitar players. Right. Then sort of reaching some sort of bar of accuracy or uh, sophistication or something. I, I completely agree. And kind of cycling through a little bit uh, more of your history, I have some some questions regarding a few things I wanted to uh, ask you about. I know that in 1981, you were given a guitar scholarship to the University of North Texas, or uh, North Texas State University. Is that where you able to study with Jack Peterson? Was he there at that time? Okay. So yeah. I'm curious to ask you, I know you were only there for a year and then you went back, uh, you went to back to Chicago to Northwestern University, which I also want to talk about because my sister went to Northwestern, so oh. I'm familiar with Evanston. But back to uh, North Texas and studying with Jack Peterson, can you talk a little bit about what that year was like and how he informed your playing and particularly like his, his right hand picking technique um, that has that sort of figure eight style. How did yeah. that kind of vibe with you? Well, a few words about how the program was structured back then. Okay. First of all, you know, wonderful people down there. Mm -hmm. um, the story is that I heard later they lost my papers and my audition tape somewhere uh, in the pile of offices. Huh. And so they didn't let me know. I thought I'd been rejected, but I hadn't received anything, you know, and I was like, eh, oh, well, maybe not the music thing. Maybe I'll. Yeah. Maybe I'll be a pharmacist, you know. <laughs> and and three days before classes started, I got a call from Rich Madison, who had, who's the euphonium virtuoso. Okay. Uh, who's, the, I believe, the head of the department, maybe, or at least, you know, among the, the heads of the department, of the jazz department. And he's like, you got the scholarship. Can you be here Monday? And I think it was Friday. Whoa. <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh, hey, mom, dad, can we chat a little bit and I had to cancel my guitar students because I was teaching at the local music store here and we hopped in our Chrysler and drove down in 1981 you know wow got there and Rich I walked I mean he said you know pull up to this address walk down this hallway knock on the door and Rich Madison if you ever have met him he's like 18 feet tall and he's like built like a bear he's just a huge guy and I was even tinier than I am now <laughs> Like 80, I know I was probably 105 pounds or something, you know, all hair and braces. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he walks in and he just picked me up with the biggest bear hug you can ever imagine. You know, he'd probably be sued today for just being the wonderful person that he is. He just gave me a pencil hug, lifted me like three feet into the air, you know, and took me by the hand and we walked through and registered me at my classes and got me my room in my dorm and then I auditioned for Jack and for placement I got in all you know the, whatever the, the bands and stuff like that and played in the, the, the ragtime guitar and some and the one thing that I remembered was that they had me audition you know and, and, and they were like you know and I started doing this you know and they were like I'm like did you do that again and I was like yeah got me in this band and all the bands because I didn't know at the time that playing rhythm guitar was something that fusion guitar players, rock guitar players didn't know how to do, but I've been doing that for years in Chicago at the jam session, you know. This is and a Von Freeman's jam session? That, that I, I like to say I went to the College of Von Freeman, you know, that's yeah. where I would go. When I was 16, my, my parents would let me take the car into the south side of Chicago, which, really? 
Right, right. Maybe, uh, yeah. And I, drove, and I came home at four in the morning by myself, you know, with my, my little amp and my guitar. You That's know? the way to, way to learn, man, you know? And, and so at North Texas, I began to realize that, you know, even it was just an inkling that, wow, there was this groove thing that I had picked up from all of my experiences that wasn't just a given. Not everybody had that. So I was a practicer and I was into all that stuff, but I think the, the rhythmic sensibility is what really sold what I had to, to them. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is a consistent theme on our podcast. Um, we talk about rhythm guitar and the importance of rhythm guitar. Uh, it is often overlooked with a lot of younger guitar players and um, even just guitar players with different styles that don't necessarily just get into like being able to play some convincing quarter note on their instrument and accompany somebody. And it makes such a huge difference in terms of your feel as a soloist and just your ability to work. And I mean, there's so many, you could go on and on about the importance of rhythm guitar. Certainly in our band, the New West Guitar Group, without a bassist and a drummer, we have to be strong on rhythm guitar. Otherwise, we don't even have a chance at surviving the gig. So it's, yeah. it's been a big part of what we've done in this group, and I'm just glad that you're echoing those sentiments again and, and telling people well, the importance. And that's the thing about, about your group you know, that's so happening is that you have that, that, that pocket in there. I mean, there, in the history of jazz, there are a lot of guitar-driven groups. Mm. You know, whether it's starting with the hot club music. Mm -hmm. And really, I like to say that, well, first of all, you know, let's just be clear. Rhythm guitar in any style is a deep art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, guitar soloing, eh, you know, a couple of blues scales and a couple of bends and pretty much anybody can, can pull off something reasonable, right. you know, but not that rhythm part. That rhythm part is, you know, you go to reggae music, the rhythm guitar player is the one getting the big check, the one who can do the bubble, you know. Right. You know, orchestrating funk guitar parts is an art. Right. Um, orchestrating rock guitar parts, you know, is, is, is a deep art, you know, and what Eddie Van Halen did as a rhythm guitarist to me is probably much more meaningful in the long run than what he, you know, innovated as a lead guitar player. You know, both are incredible, but I listen to his rhythm playing and I just, I just want to like pull my pants. It's so amazing. You know, <laughs> So great, you know, and and I I think that art when it's understood is really satisfying. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I mean that's what careers are built on. Yeah, rhythm you, guitar playing. Yeah, you can't really bullshit your way on rhythm guitar. You won't stand a chance. But you can kind of, you know, you can kind of BS your way through a solo, I suppose, or just kind of mark it on a solo, you know. Uh, not to say that there isn't depth, of course, with lead playing. Obviously, there is. Um, but yeah, with rhythm guitar, you're kind of, you're dealing. Um, right. God, there's so many things I, I wanted to get to. I, I know I want to try to keep an eye on the time because I know John and Will have a lot of uh, questions to ask you as well. Can I just cycle through a few things that I've been curious to ask you? Okay, so I know that from UNT, you go to Northwestern and studied classical guitar. And that has obviously been a, a big part of your career. Um, you know, being a classical guitarist as well and having a vibe on the nylon string. Um, it proved to be a really important move for you because um, you ended up meeting Paquito uh, de Rivera there. And that friendship kind of um, has lasted a life, 
time for you, but he also introduced you to Sting. Is that correct? That's and, right. And that opened some big doors for you as a recording artist. Um, right. Is that kind? Do I have that lineage yep. somewhat correct? Yep. So I, I was uh, studying at Northwestern Classical. I mean, the, the NTSU thing was great, but ultimately, I, I was like, I could probably play jazz, you know, right out in Chicago and and get my bones there, you know, yeah. and and the study classical. And so while I was doing that, I was playing more and more jazz gigs. And I think the great Claudio Roditi, who mm-hmm. recently passed away, unfortunately, yeah. he uh, he wasn't available for one one of the gigs. And so rather than get another trumpet player, I mean, it's hard to replace Claudio. Right. He's a trumpet He's such a badass. And so yeah. he said, let's try Howard Levy was on the gig. Great uh, piano player and harmonica player. Okay. And he recommended me for the gig. Kido's sweetheart, man. He's the greatest leader. We never had nothing, nothing but fun, you know. We played the gig. He dug the gig. I didn't hear from him for a few months. Every six months, uh, every six weeks or so, I would get a a funny postcard, you know, like a, a gag postcard from him, you know. How you doing? You know, uh, your girlfriend says hi to be some like old lady with no teeth, <laughs> you know. Funny stuff. And and then finally, he started calling me for some gigs when he had some, some openings, and then I became a regular member of the group for on and off for about 10, 10 years or so. We did about, I don't know, eight to 10 albums. I played, you know, jazz and rock and classical music in his group because he needed all those uh, different sounds in his band. So that's another place where the versatility and the roots kind of, kind of helped me along. At the same time, uh, Sting invited me through Paquito. Sting invited me to, to make an album for his, uh, his new label. Right, which is called Pangea or something? What was it called? Something yeah, like that's that? right, Pangea. Right. Pangea. And uh, at that time, I had to make a decision as to what you know, my personal musical sound was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I kind of decided to stick to the nylon string for those few records. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had written a ton of sort of more acoustic, ECM-style nylon string music. Mm-hmm. And we to do that music on these records it, it uh, must have been a, a fascinating time for you i mean from my research i was gathering that you were able to work with artists like joe henderson one of my all-time favorite saxophone players joey calderazzo the pianist vocalist cassandra wilson um who i actually did some recording with recently interesting oh, uh, out here great. in new york up in woodstock with her uh, nice. So we have that connection. Also, trumpeter Arturo Sandoval, you were able to work with, who will currently plays in Arturo Sandoval's band. So there's definitely some connections here between your oh. career and the New West yeah. Guitar Group. And, you know, a question that I had for you around this time, this must have been kind of late 90s, getting into, I mean, late 80s, getting into the 90s. The record yeah. industry is in full swing. You know, you're, you're recording... Uh, with some incredible people and you're making your own album on Warner brothers, but it gets shelved. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't understand about the record industry back then is, yeah, there was more money. Yeah. There was opportunity for your recorded music to really take you in some incredible places. That's more difficult today, but you also had a lot less of control of what you were doing and your output. And, you know, what is that like doing a record with the likes of, John Patitucci and Russ Ferrante and Mike Landau and Carlos Vega and Lenny Castro, and then not having that record see the light of day. I mean, what, what do you do at that point? You know? Well, I mean, boy, I mean, there are so many dramas in, in, in these, in these universes, you know? Yes. So I was, I did two records for Pangea and then Blue Note picked me up. 
Yes, exactly. And I did a record for Blue Note that really did well for me. Um, and then Warner Brothers came upon and they had a big amount of money. And Tommy LaPuma, the great Tommy LaPuma, was going to produce the record. Wow. And and I, I was pretty naive, but I was smart enough to say, hey, you know, the secret of the records that I did that you liked so much was that it was, it was minimal production. It was like drums, acoustic bass, classical guitar, and electric kind of space guitar, like a Frizzell-style guitar player. Uh-huh. Great friend of mine, John Adair. And then went a little percussion here and there. That was it. You know, real spare. Yeah. And I said, so we can make a record like that and you'll really have room for the classical guitar in the middle. Because I, I normally play, when, when I play that kind of music, I'm, I'm not playing, you know, you know, I'm playing, you know, full, full, right. full sound, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and everything. And so how you treat that. And Tom's like, oh, sure, 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 you know. And I said, well, or the other thing you can do, Tom, if you want to, is just get your cats in the studio do your funk thing that you'd like to do, like with Earl, Clue, George Benson. Do yeah. that thing that you do. I'll come in for two days. I'll lay on guitar tracks. It's going to sound great. Everybody's going to be happy. Well, no, he wanted to do a Fareed record. He wanted to do this the ambient, cool thing. Yeah. And uh, But by the time we were done, man, they were like vocals and strings. And great drummer Carlos Vega was playing drums on yeah. it. But Carlos is like a 40-inch bass drum, you know. And he's got sticks like baseball bats, you know, yeah. and and he's a fantastic drummer. You know, and what was hilarious was they did all this stuff, you know, keyboard overdubs and three percussion passes and two electric guitars and strings and voices. And then <laughs> and Tommy looked at me once and he's like, hey, you know, it's weird, though, because the tracks sound great. And then we bring the guitar and I can't hear the guitar. And so um, it was a tricky session, you know. All the way along, I have the copy of the record. I actually got a bootleg version copy of it before the, the, they they shelved it. Okay, and uh, you, you know, I can let it, you hear it sometime. It's interesting. It's cool. There's there's definitely some moments, but there's also like you know, it's like some some records want want to not be produced, and some records want to be produced. You know, and you kind of have to, I think, either go one way or the other. Either you let the cats play and let the shit be real. Well, you produce the hell out of it yeah. and let it back, you know? Such an interesting thing to talk about because I don't think listeners or, uh, you know, people who are really fans of, of music understand, you know, how tenuous recording could have been back then, you know, where like you're trying to produce something and get your vision on it, but you've got a producer, you've got a record label, you've got all these other instruments that are coming in. And there's probably a lot of recordings that we never know about that just didn't make the light of day for, for a there's variety a of reasons. There's a McLaughlin Chick Corea duo record. Say, say again? There's a McLaughlin Chick Corea duo record. I did yeah. not know this. Really? They're talk, they have talked about putting it out, and I don't know if it'll ever happen. Wow. Um, you know, the other side of this that I think might be worth mentioning is that Tommy was producing this record at the same time as Natalie Cole's unforgettable album oh so maybe he was yeah (laughs) he was stretched thin my management at the time received uh bills for a lot of things that were not part of our session and when we went back to the label and said hey you know all these things are actually part of the natalie session that had just won a grammy and sold a billion a zillion copies you know and the record label was like yeah that's okay don't worry about it 
Strange. So, yeah, I think there's all kinds of things going on in the management of, of, a, of, a, of a major label. Right, right. Like, you know, probably sliding expenses over on shelf projects that they could write off from their taxes, you know. I see. I'm not only a guitarist, I'm a businessman, too. That's right, that's right. Well, <laughs> I see how this stuff works. It's it's an interesting insight into that area, or that era, I mean, of your career, because in some ways, I think it must have been really exciting and fascinating for you to be on, you know, big record labels and working with all these great artists and, you know, getting your music highlighted in this incredible way. Uh, but then you had to deal with the uh, inherent challenges. And that's maybe not the case these days. Um, if I'm fast forwarding a good 20 years to um, a, a new album that you have out that came out last year with a, a great guitarist named Goran Ivanovich, uh, I'd love to feature a little bit of this album if you if you don't mind just play a little clip of it here for our listeners it's called indo balkan i believe and i'm just loving getting into this album it it reminds me of some of like the los angeles guitar quartet stuff and some of the assad brothers duo that i've heard um but it's kind of your guys own spin on this and i'd like to play a little bit of the opening track i think it's called santorini and then i want to pass it over to john because i know he's got some questions for you but yeah let's just check this out Uh, this is a little clip from farid hawk and goran ivanovich called santorini Nice. So killing. And, and let me pass it over to John here to get in on this. But yeah, great stuff, Fareed. Yeah, Fareed, man. So great to see you, dude. I mean, it seems yeah. like one way yesterday that we were having that beautiful summer evening in South Bend, Indiana, and got to see you totally burn on that stage with your Strat-style electric guitar, solo guitar. My jaw was on the floor that whole show because I'm thinking, man, I, it's rare you see somebody get up with a solid body and play solo guitar so incredibly captivating and well and um we were pretty stoked to get to do that double bill with you man with the new west guitar group and i hope we get to do that again soon if we get to come out to the midwest because you know man we always get in touch with you when we book those gigs out there (laughs) well you know i've got a lot of things in the work i was i was mentioning to perry that uh you know i've had you know i kind of had a a 15-year plan that got moved up 15 years because of the pandemic (laughs) and so I'm almost ready with three or four spaces that'll be 
available for like, I think music is going to change in the future. And I think it's going to be less of these huge mega events. And there's going to be a premium on intimacy, uh, intimate musical events and um, a premium on, you know, smaller, more boutique kinds of uh, venues. Well, that brings a really good point up. And one of the questions I was going to ask you, because, you know, the guys and I love talking to musicians who are your generation, you know, you guys are just maybe one decade ahead of where we were coming up, you know, or maybe even two decades, you know, hearing you talk about working with major labels like Warner Brothers and Blue Note for guys like us, it was just, it's never a reality. Um, And, and, you know, talking about how music is presented and also talking a little bit about what you just shared with Perry, do you feel like the late 80s, early 90s was kind of a golden mean for instrumental music in the pop sphere? I mean, you mentioned it, Warner Brothers, and these labels were putting lots of money into instrumental music. George Benson, Earl Clue put out that album, Collaboration, in 87 that Tommy LaPuma produced. That album went gold in the U.S., which sold half a million copies in the first few couple months was out. And it's a purely instrumental jazz guitar album. And, right. you know, you think about that influencing Tommy's choice because that album was so successful and and even Kenny G and adult contemporary there's a lot of instrumental music going on and you were a part of that man I mean seeing you on night music with David Sanborn and Sting and Frizzell do you feel like that was kind of a golden mean in a way or that you or I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that because we talk a lot about that wishing we could have participated in that a little bit <laughs> I think it was a I think it was a, a an interesting time. Um, because I think there were a lot of folks who were, what's the word, coming off the fusion movement, right? Fusion of the 70s, which, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Weather Report, Return of Forever, these were starting to be arena bands, you know? And Pat, of course, Pat Metheny, became an arena band. I think there was kind of this moment where it was like, which one, what is Pat Metheny? Is Pat Metheny serious music that a lot of people can like or is pat metheny light airy drivel that anybody can can have supper to you know and i i mean i i, I of course I, I i love and respect pat's music i think he's one of the geniuses of our time but i think a lot of folks who don't aren't necessarily musicians they might not understand song x they might not understand pat's more uh, adventuresome music but they can relate to American Garage. They can relate to Still Life Talking. You know, instrumental music has been around for a long time. I think the 80s was a time when major labels were trying to figure out how much money they could make off of instrumentals. And I think they failed, hmm. ultimately. Yeah. Um, because instrumental music and all music ultimately survive in purely business terms on catalogs. And catalog ultimately depends on artistry, right? And so Pat Metheny's records, I don't care what you call them, they're always going to sell. I made a smooth jazz record at Blue Notes and System, sold a bunch of copies out of the gate, and doesn't sell anything anymore. But I still get royalties on my Pangea records. Yeah. Still get royalties on those records that are art-driven. I still get royalties on the Deja Vu record that I did where we remade all those classic uh, CSNY tunes. And you see it again and again, you know, the 80s was a time where, where business was trying to see if they could grab hold of this product. Some careers were made, some careers weren't. But I don't think you can say that smooth jazz is a, 
a force in the music world mm -hmm. today like it was. And yet, you know, a blues band or a New Orleans roots band or a reggae band still going to be hitting hard because it's got those roots, you know. Yeah. That's so the true. difference. It's true. And like it almost became a status symbol, a smooth jazz and a lot of in instrumental contemporary music on these major labels were listened to by wealthier people. And in the 80s, there was a lot of money and people were just spending money. So the economy was booming and jazz festivals were humongous. Um, right. You know, I saw the Mount Hood Jazz Festival when I, in the mid 90s when I was a kid. And I mean, and it filled up the biggest soccer area in Oregon. Wow. Maybe 100,000 people were there to see guys. And, you know, there would be guys like Gonzalo Rubalcaba and a young Brad Meldow and Chick Corea, but there'd also be Kenny G and Tom Grant and a lot of the early smooth jazz guys, you know. I toured with, uh, with Dave Holland for a while uh, before I went with Zalino. Because when I was with Blue Note, I was part of sort of the stable of guitar players. So if there was a gig they'd recommend me for it, and I would go. And Dave was great to work for, and, and I, I wasn't really... I wish I'd been a little more mature as a player to play with someone of that stature. And so he's like, oh, yeah, we're playing, you know, this this gig, you know, over in Europe and we're going to be there for a while. And we go there and it's like we're playing, we're ahead. I mean, Schofield is opening for us. We're headlining these major free jazz festivals where it's all avant-garde music, you know. I think that model of, of art music is, is in the long run more sustainable. Mm -hmm. I think people are always going to pay for fine music as much as they are able to and as much as they're exposed to it. And, you know, music with roots is going to always be there. And I think that's the problem with smooth jazz is it didn't quite have the roots in culture that it needed to. Right. Yeah, man. Well, again, we're, we're so thankful for your time today and I'm going to pass it over to Will just to keep, keep our time going on here. And uh, dude, it's so great to hear you talk, man. We really appreciate it. I feel like, I feel like we get a lesson with cats like you when we get to just talk to you like this, man. So we really appreciate it, man. Thank you, brother. And hopefully when we get the barn up and running, we guys will have you out. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Reed, man, it's nice, nice to meet you finally. Yeah. Good to meet you, man. Um, I have a funny story about um, how I first heard about you. Uh oh. So, <clears throat> no, not that kind of story. Uh, so I, I was teaching at a, a jazz camp in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. Oh, my gosh. Rhinelander, yeah. None other than Kim Richmond. Yes. Great and uh, at Northwoods, Northwoods Jazz Camp, right? Yeah. Uh, I did that for about three, three or four years. Um, and there are some photos on the wall of uh -huh. yourself playing 175 with long black hair. And yeah. with Kim, who, who almost doesn't look any different. <laughs> that guy is like, what is he like a vampire? What? <laughs> he just had a beard, basically. That's the only thing that looked different. And that's and he would say, Oh, that's Fareed Hawk. You know, he would we would do a lot of playing up here. Um, and that's how I first heard about you. Um, very, very cool. I love Kim. He's he's a, a real a real mentor for me. I yeah, I'm curious, how did you guys meet and hook up? This is way back when I was at Northwestern. I was playing in the jazz ensemble. He was our guest artist one year. And uh, and I started gigging enough that I told my dad that I didn't need any money. That I was cool. I had money. I was cool. I had my apartment. I got my gigs. I'm cool. And uh, and then I was then I looked at my summer and I didn't have shit. I had nothing. Not a gig. And I was like, oh, man, I cannot call my dad up and tell him. <laughs> Send a check. I just, I can't do it. Can't do it. I, I'll end up in McDonald's first, you know. All right. Sucking burgers, but 
And then Kim calls and he's like, Hey, what are you doing this summer? And I was like, I'm pretty busy, but what do you got? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and he had like the whole summer playing supper music, dinner music, five nights a week. And so I, I went up there for the whole summer. We played standards duo. Oh, now was this in Rhinelander at that at that Holiday Acres? Yeah. Oh my gosh! Wow, that's so funny. And I hung out with Chris Zambon. Yeah. The old man was alive at that time, and he was great, great jazz, you know, fan. They had all kinds of luminaries come out there, and Shaughnessy would come out. And Did you stay in those funky cabins near the yeah. water? Yeah. Love it. yeah. That practice sitting there on the pier. Oh, it was heavenly. Just learning tunes. Just loved it. Just loved it. Yeah, it was great playing with him. That's so funny. I just had to share that connection. I thought that was so cool. Another thing I wanted to get your insight on is, you know, functioning as a guitar player across multiple genres, which is something I love doing as well. I feel very, you know, like-minded in that sense. And I, when I hear you're playing and how diverse it is, I want to get your input on time feel across any genre, Somewhat separate from vocabulary and stylizations, you know what I mean? I do. Obviously, I do. it plays into it, but I'd love to hear. I'd love to get your idea on that. Well, I, I think it's a really a great question, and and it's a, it's a, I think it's a deep subject. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the the big revelations for me when when I realized how bad Cuban musicians were playing at Brazilian song, you know, it made me realize that it isn't just this one mathematical formula. I mean, I think. Musical notation, while it does us a lot of good, it's also done us a lot of disservices. It mm. reduced and removed a lot of the nuance that actually makes the music meaningful. If you listen to the greatest classical guitarist, in my opinion, John Williams, play some Charlie Bird blues, it is horrible. It's so horrible because he doesn't have any of the time feel, but his rhythm is, is impeccable. You know, there's this idea of playing on the grid, and then there's this idea of expressiveness around the grid. Mm-hmm. I think that's a huge part of the musical vocabulary that that you have to understand if you're to be a meaningful part of a, of a of a musical ensemble of any kind of group. As a rhythm guitarist, you have to learn that no time is not expressive. You know, if you're going to play a clock, it may it may not be on the grid in the same way that it is in an LA jingle session, but but there's a certain thing that has to be, you know, to be able to play in the rhythm section, you have to understand the different parts, you know, and how they relate to each other. And then as an expressive element, you know, when you hear a, a Celia Cruz or Rimlada singing on top of those kinds of grooves, wow, that's a whole different experience. You know, the way they push and pull, you can't follow them. And I, I play with a lot of Western music, a lot of American musicians, European musicians. I got to tell them, hey, listen, I'm going to play behind the beat. Right? I'm not dragging. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? and, and, and it's weird because a lot of times it, it takes some convincing, you know, you know, playing with Von Freeman, it was like someone just hung like a, a ball and chain around your neck, man. He was so far behind the beat, you know, and I do this thing with, with kids where I, I, you know, keep a tempo and I'll say, you know, and all of a sudden everybody in the room starts smiling just like you can't help it it's physiological way time pulls against each other is a 
physiological thing that creates a reaction, both oral and physical. You can't do that in a room and not have everybody smile. You know, comedians dream of a gift like that. <laughs> you know, and, and I honestly think that, that like comedy and music are, are much more related because of that, because mm-hmm. it depends on, you know, secret of comedy is timing, you know. So, you know, appreciate that question because that is exactly what I think takes up all of my time. Yeah. Where does the note fall in this style of music? Where does the corner note fall in this style of music? How powerful is that laid back? You know, I play the melody sometimes, and if the band is following me, the emotion disappears. If the band is playing steady, and I can lay back or play ahead, now I have an... Ex- this is the palette that I'm painting on. The palette can't move around, or my brush strokes are going to be whacked, right? And, man, it just makes such a difference. You know, when I play with Tony Monica, man, I sound so good playing with Tony, I shouldn't sound that good. And I play with another organ player, and I sound horrible. That's mm-hmm. how I sound. But Tony's feel is so fat that I can lay a mile back. It's a great recording of Wes playing Unit 7 with his brothers. And then there's another recording of him playing Unit 7 with an L.A. rhythm section. And Wes sounds better on the early recording. Yeah, yeah. But Wes is playing the same. Right. Context. It's just where the rhythm section is in relation to his notes. He doesn't have the same feeling, you know. And something else, and kind of piggybacking off what you're talking about, is you know the power that that lines have, regardless of the context. Like the lines being the the main focus, and the context or genre or style kind of being like the clothing you dress it in. But anything from Bach to to Cuban music to swing to bebop, linear lines that have they hope they have their own sequences they have their own validity whether you play it rubato or in time etc cetera, etc cetera. it's just an interesting it's kind of the glue that kind of spans across any quote unquote genre you know which is a weird word anyway so yeah yeah you know i i feel like in some ways my mission is to tell to show people that you can play bebop on anything <laughs> absolutely man yeah absolutely you know, yeah, it's, it's a religion. All right. Yeah. Right. No, I'm with you, man. Uh, for real, I'm just going to try to wrap it up. Thanks for your time here with us today. Uh, it's really just, I, I think John mentioned it as well. Um, it's just been a pleasure uh, to have you on the podcast. I do have one little track that I'd love to play a little bit from. Uh, it's from an album of yours called Out of Nowhere. Uh, oh, I'd like to just cool. feature a little bit of inner urge, if that's all right with you. This is a recording that features the great drummer Billy Hart and bassist George Mraz. <laughs> Thank you. 
Flowing and burning and, and, and keeping it behind the beat, uh, just like I like to hear it, man. Making me smile, like you said. I like that, man. Uh, that's a fun tune to play. Yeah, it really is. And, man, thank you so much for joining us today on High Action. Uh, really fascinating interview and getting to reconnect with you, and I'm glad you're doing well. I hope down the road we get to see you and uh, interact and and have a drink, shoot, shoot, and shoot the shit, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's do it, man. All right, my man. We got the hot tub, and we got the barn, and we got the stage, and we'll have a party out there. Oh, you're ready to go. I like it. Okay. All right. Well, um, man, my best to you, and uh, thanks again, my man. Thanks, Fareed. Thanks, Fareed. See you guys. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.